The reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 37, verses 17 to 36. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near, near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 70 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Sometimes you hear of people taking the credit for things that they didn't necessarily do, uh, trying to make themselves look good when in fact it was somebody else who's done all of the work. Um, uh, a friend of mine worked for quite a while as an electrical engineer with the RTA and one of the big jobs that he did was this, the lane changing system on the Harbour Bridge. He was the one who designed it and ensured that it was all put into place. He worked for quite some time doing all the planning and the preparation for it and finally had the whole thing in place before he finished work there. About a year later, he went back to visit the people that he'd worked with in the head office of the the lane changing thing, which is actually just right beside the Harbour Bridge. And he went into the control room and he overheard one of his former employees telling a visitor how he was the one who'd put this whole system into place. Now, Phil was standing at the back thinking he had nothing to do with it. He 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 didn't even work on this project. 
But here he was wanting to take the credit for something that he hadn't really done. The truth was he'd had nothing to do with the construction or the implementation of this lane changing system. Well, we're looking at a person today who is almost the complete opposite of that in Joseph. Joseph is a man who never wants to take the credit for things that have happened. He's the one who, it's quite a stunning characteristic in his life. He wants God to be acknowledged as the one who rules over all things, every aspect of his life. Anything that good, anything good that happens in Joseph's life, Joseph wants to say, this is God who has done this for me. Joseph firmly believes that God is the one who rules over all things. Now, over the past few weeks, we've looked at the story of Isaac and Jacob, and we're now moving on to looking at, the, at Jacob's sons, his 12 sons. Let me just remind you of what the family outline was. Uh, Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah, and each of those wives had a maidservant, Zilpah and Bilhah. And together, these four women gave birth to the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where the nation of Israel comes from. But it's really just one child that we focus on for the rest of the book of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph that we read about in these chapters. From chapter 37 right to the end in chapter 50, Joseph will be the dominant character in the story. Now, we've heard from the kids' talk before that uh, Joseph was the favourite son, and you can see from the family tree, he's the first son born to Rachel, who was Jacob's true love. So that's why he's the favourite son. That's why he is the one who is loved most of all by his father. Now, you might remember that... uh, Jacob's father Isaac had played favourite sons as well and that didn't turn out terribly well for them so it's actually quite surprising that Jacob's now doing the same thing of having a favourite son. Now I can tell you from personal experience it's a really hard thing being a a favourite child. Um, My my mum didn't laugh at that when I said it at Bible study during the week either so uh, but His other brothers truly hated him because of the favouritism that was shown to him. He got all this special treatment, but there was one thing that uh, that probably made them hate him even more. I, I, I bet Joseph's brothers would have loved the fact that a musical was written about Joseph's life. Uh, Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat. This was the the first musical written and performed by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. Uh, but those two things in that name, the Technicolor Dream Coat, the, the, the coat and the dreams, are, are the two reasons that they hated him. The, the coat represents that favouritism that he was the only child who was given this coat by his father. And colours back in those days, coloured cloth was very, very expensive. So this would have been a very valuable cloth that he, uh, coat that he would have been wearing. But it was also the dreams. Uh, Joseph had these two dreams. Uh, dreams that his brothers would ultimately one day be bowing down to him. Now, it's one thing that Joseph actually has those dreams, but you've got to think it was a little bit naive to think that his brothers would be excited to hear about these dreams. Uh, he tells his brothers about the first one, about the sheaves of wheat bowing down before him, and his brothers hate him for it. So when he has the second dream, well, he decides he'll tell them about that as well, thinking that they may be somehow more excited to hear about the second dream. 
He's saying to them, one day you're all going to bow down to me. Now, I don't think Joseph is being arrogant. I think that what we see about Joseph in his character is that he is an honest and and, and likeable character. But his brothers ultimately hate him for all of this and they sell him off into slavery. A little interesting side note if you've got your Bible there, verse chapter 37, verses 25 and 26. Did you notice that it's the Ishmaelites who buy him? Uh, They're the ones that are going to take him and sell him. Ishmael was, in fact, Abraham's other son, not the one who receives the inheritance. Isaac's half-brother. Well, after being sold to the Ishmaelites, uh, Jacob's brothers have to, uh, Jacob's sons have to come up with a story to tell their dad. What's happened to Joseph? Where is he? Well, they get Joseph's coat, the colourful coat. They splash some goat's blood on it and they take take it to Jacob and he draws the conclusion himself that he must have been eaten by a wild animal. I think as soon as we hear goat's blood there, we're also supposed to remember back to another episode in Jacob's earlier life. Remember when he swindled his dad, his blind ageing father, and he swindled his brother out of the inheritance? That involved a goat as well, didn't it? Well, a goat is now being used again, this time to con Jacob. Jacob's devastated by the news of Joseph's death. This truly was the son that he loved above all others. And there's no consoling him. He says that he's going to grieve until the day that he dies. Now, as I said, I think there's something that's quite likeable about Joseph. Uh, He's one of the few characters in the pages of the Old Testament that is unblemished. That he doesn't have, he doesn't mess up in any major way. All the other major characters do. Abraham does, Moses does, David does, Solomon certainly does. But Joseph is the man who seems to make no mistakes. He, he has a desire to live a faithful life in his relationship with God. He's clearly not like his dad. He's not like Jacob at all. Jacob was cunning and devious, whereas Joseph seems to be almost naive and trusting. But above all, he trusts God. He wants to live that faithful, obedient life. But now he's been rejected by his brothers, sold off into slavery in a foreign land. You've got to be thinking to yourself, this would be pretty tough, wouldn't it? I mean, for a 17-year-old to have to go and live in that foreign country, and not just go and live there, but go and live there as a slave. But one of the things that you notice in Joseph's stories in the story of Joseph is that there's very strong parallels between him and Daniel who we read about later on in the pages of the Old Testament. Both off to live in a foreign land at a young age, both thrown into prison, both rise to prominence in that country, both seek to be faithful in serving God wherever they are, whatever their circumstances are, no matter how difficult things get. Well, Joseph remained faithful to God because he knew that God was with him every step of the way. Can I I get you to turn to chapter 39 of Genesis and find verse number 2? Let me just read what it says here because Joseph is well aware that God is with him every step of the way. Look at what it says, chapter 32, uh, chapter 39, sorry, and verse number 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and he became his attendant. 
And then jump down a little further to verse 20. This is when Joseph is is thrown into prison. And and look at what it says. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph. And gave him success in whatever he did. Here's Joseph dragged off into a foreign country, sold as a slave. But the thing that stands out in the story is that God's with him every step of the way. No matter where he is, in the, in the palace, in the prison, God's with him and directing the affairs of his life. When in Egypt he becomes an important person working for Potiphar, the the commander of the guard. But then comes the twist in the story. Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to Joseph. Joseph resisted out of respect for his boss, but also out of a desire to remain faithful to God. And because of his refusal to sleep with Potiphar's wife, he's finally framed and thrown into prison. I mean, the irony is... He's going to prison because he tried not to do the wrong thing. God's still with Joseph, even though he's in this situation. And while he's in prison, we're told that he's able to interpret the dreams of two of his fellow prisoners and an element of the story that comes back a little later on. In Egypt back in those days, a great importance was placed on dreams and their interpretation. They were an insight into what was going to happen in your life and in your world. So there were magicians and wise men who would be paid to interpret dreams. So when Pharaoh has a dream, well, no expense is spared to find the best dream interpreters around to tell him what these dreams mean. And his dreams were very strange ones about the the seven stalks of corn and seven more that ate those ones and the seven fat cows eaten by the seven scrawny cows. talks about the fact that there are ugly cows in there. I've got a feeling that all cows are ugly myself. I've never seen an attractive one. But he's in prison for two years before anything else happens. Two years he's sitting in this prison cell. Now you can you can you can imagine that Joseph might be getting a little disappointed with God that things have shaped up this way. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Joseph's finally brought to Pharaoh and interprets Pharaoh's dreams. But I want you to notice what it says. Chapter 41 we're up to now and find verse number 15. When he's finally brought before Pharaoh, look at what look at what happens in this conversation. Pharaoh said to Joseph, "I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream you can interpret it can't do it joseph replied to pharaoh but god will give you the answer he desires see here he is he's not saying yeah oh look i'm a great dream interpreter best in best in the country now he says god is the one who is able to interpret these dreams And their dreams about seven good years and then seven bad years. Seven years uh, of plenty and then seven years of famine. And Joseph suggests that they store grain during those good years to cover the bad years that are to come. And because of the wisdom that he demonstrates in this circumstance, Pharaoh makes him the second in charge in Egypt. It's a rather stunning turnaround, isn't it? 
One day he goes from having a cell with his name on the door to now having an office that says Prime Minister of Egypt written on the door. So by the age of 30, Joseph has been through an enormous amount, been rejected by his brothers, hated by them, sold into slavery, thrown into prison, and now he's become the Prime Minister of Egypt. There are some people who want to look at the Joseph story and say, well, the point is God will always give you success, that that's what God has in store for you. But I think that's missing the point completely. And more than that, it's actually distorting the whole point of the story. Joseph has got to where he is, not because of his own ability, not because he planned it well, not even because of good luck. He's got there because God put him there. And you get the impression that Joseph is content to be wherever he is because he knows that that's where God has put him. If he's in Potiphar's house, then he will be the best and the most trustworthy servant that he can be in that house. If he is in prison, then he will be the best and the most trustworthy prisoner that he can be. See, the thing that Joseph knows is that God's the one who's in control of all things. He's in control when Joseph is sold into slavery. He's in control when Joseph is thrown into prison. He's in control when Joseph has made the most powerful man in Egypt. It would have been very easy for Joseph to become a bit dispirited by some of the things that have happened to him, wouldn't it? Rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, unjustly thrown into prison. And it would have been very tempting for Joseph to want to take the credit for some of the positive things that have happened in his life. To take that pat on the back for the wisdom that he's shown here. But Joseph has placed his trust in a God who is in total control of all things. A God who can be relied on in all circumstances. A God who can be trusted no matter what situation you find yourself in. See, that's the point of this story, isn't it? And at the risk of stating the glaringly obvious, that's our God. That's the God that we have our trust in. That's the God who sent his son Jesus into this world so that we could know him personally. The God who is in complete charge of all events. The God who is totally sovereign. The God who is all powerful. The God who can be trusted at all times and in all circumstances. See, when you approach life knowing that God's got things under control, when you approach life knowing that God has put you where you are, it can change the way that you look at your situation, can't it? It can help you to face that situation a little more confidently, even the difficult situations. There's a great verse in in Philippians Uh, where Paul, the apostle, has been thrown into prison quite unjustly. Uh, But he's writing to the Philippians, just wanting to reassure them that everything's okay. Uh, look Look at what he says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He's not, this isn't kind of every cloud has a silver lining thinking. What he knows is that God's in charge of all things. So even when he's unjustly arrested and thrown into prison, Paul's saying, this is great. Things are working out really well. People are getting to hear the gospel. I never would have even met these people had I not been thrown into prison. He knows that wherever he is, whatever his circumstances, he's there to serve God. And it's God who's put him into this situation. Paul says a similar thing in the book of Romans. He says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now Paul's not suggesting for a moment that only good things will happen to God's people. That's certainly not the point at all. Just a few verses later he goes on to say this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All of those are real possibilities and most of those are things that Paul himself faced. So he's not saying God will only let good things happen to you from here on in. No, he knows that trouble and hardship are real possibilities. What Paul is saying is what Joseph knew from personal experience, isn't it? God's got it all under control. You don't, and you never did, and you never will. But you can have complete confidence in the God who does. You can trust him. Doesn't mean that we sit back and say, well, God will make it happen. No, it means that you act like Joseph. You face the situation that you're in as one that God has put you in. And you seek to be the best and the most trustworthy person that you can be in that situation. We're going to close in just a minute uh, singing a hymn that uh, reflects that attitude that Joseph had. Let me just read you the first two verses of the hymn that we're going to sing. My times are in thy hand. My God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. My times are in thy hand. Whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best they seem to thee.